0: Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Boucher, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, Tara O'Neill-Hayes, the Director of Human Welfare Policy, will join us to discuss her latest research into food insecurity and food insufficiency. Tara, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks, Kyle.
0: How have you been holding up through this whole pandemic?
1: You know, it's been interesting. It's been uh, challenging at times. It's been somewhat nice at times, I hate to say, to not commute, I don't miss that aspect of it, and to just work from home. I've been enjoying it more than I thought I would.
0: Yeah, this is, I think, the first time I've lived down here and not taken the Metro an entire year. It's kind of weird. But hopefully the light is at the end of the tunnel and we'll all be seeing each other in the office sooner rather than later. All right, let's jump right into things. Tara, throughout this entire pandemic, we've heard stories and seen the images of long lines at food banks. A government study showed the number of people reporting sometimes not having enough to eat increased by 31%. You researched the long-term trends and recent changes in food security in the United States. Uh, And I'd like to talk to you about your research as you came to some counterintuitive conclusions throughout your work. I think it would help if we started by defining the problem what is food insecurity and how is it different from food insufficiency?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and obviously a great place to start. So, food insecurity really is a much broader measure than whether you just have enough to eat or not. Of course, that's part of it, uh, but it is also measuring the quality, variety, and desirability of the food that you have access to and that you're able to eat. Food insufficiency is a much more narrow measure of, like I said, do you have enough to eat or not? Are you going hungry? Um, And this often overlaps with the population that is defined as having very low food security. So when we talk about food insecurity, there's kind of two different levels. You can be food insecure, um, but not have very low food insecurity, which is then means you're more having trouble with getting that variety. Um, a good quality diet, et cetera, but but you have enough to eat. Whereas very low food security means you probably don't have good quality and variety and you probably are often going hungry. And that's where you see the overlap between food insecurity and insufficiency. It's those people who have very low food security that are most likely to be food insufficient.
0: So my next question feels a little technical, but I think it's, you know, important to our later conversation. How are food insecurity and food insufficiency measured?
1: Yeah, so since 1995, the census, in part of their annual surveying of the population, um, has measured food insecurity at the end of every year in December by asking a series of eight to 15 questions. They ask additional questions for households that have children in them to better understand not just. Um, you know, what's happening with, with the adults. But of course, we're also very concerned about what might be happening with children in a household um, as nutrition is vitally important, particularly the younger you are. Um, and so typically food insecurity has just been measured at the end of each year um, with a nationally representative population. And it really wasn't until um, the start of the pandemic that we started measuring very specifically food insufficiency in a very narrow window. So during the pandemic, the Census Bureau has started doing biweekly surveys of households asking them in the last week or in the last two weeks, have you not had enough to eat? And then they ask you to rate that, you know, was it never, sometimes, often. And so, you know, we really just over the last year have been measuring at a much more granular in more recent, you know, with a more recent time frame, are you insufficient in your in your diet or not? Mm-hmm.
0: You've you've mentioned that the census has been tracking this for a while now. What do the historical data show here? I mean, how has food insecurity trended over the last decade or two?
1: Yeah, so unsurprisingly, food insecurity and fu- food insufficiency tend to increase as economic conditions worsen. Um, for example, when unemployment rises, when incomes decline, when the cost of food increases, um, you know, I think that's probably pretty obvious to most people when when you're struggling financially, you have less money available to to purchase food, to purchase, you know, high quality, more nutritious foods. Um, so you're more likely to experience these problems in those times. One interesting note on food prices is that the price of food can be impacted by both supply and demand. Uh, When the price of food falls, demand may be expected to increase and food insecurity thus would decrease and vice versa. However, if the price of food falls because of an economic downturn that dampens demand, it may take time for demand to return even after the prices of food start to come down. These opposing effects can be observed by looking at the spike in food insecurity that occurred as the price of food rose significantly in 2007 and 2008 when we had our last recession and then persisted in 2009 and 2010 as economic recession continued but food prices plummeted nevertheless over the past 25 years very low food insecurity has never surpassed six percent and by 2019 that rate was down to 4.1 percent, and it's been declining since 2014 as the economy started to improve. Of right. course, before the pandemic.
0: Right. Well, we'll talk about the pan- you know this effect on the pandemic because I you know that's the the basis of your research here. But one quick question before we get into that, you know, you mentioned that hunger is highly correlated with the economy, which points to job and income being you know the main points for for food insecurity. But what other factors are there just that affect right. this issue?
1: Right. Yeah. Poverty is certainly one of the most common causes of, of food insecurity or insufficiency. Uh, but there are a number of other causes that may be a little less obvious. Um, for example, access to grocery stores or other types of food markets. Um, you know, if you, if you don't have good access, if you live in an area that you may have heard the term food desert or even food swamp, um, food desert typically refers to an area where like a desert, you know, there's just not a lot of options right. there. Um, food Swamp might have options, but they're poor options. It's mostly fast food, 7-Elevens, convenience stores, things like that, uh, where you're not likely to have access to fresh produce, fruits and vegetables, high nutrient foods. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously not having access to high quality food is automatically going to make it more difficult for you to, to consume those foods. Yeah. And then there are things like disability. I um, recently fell down my stairs and (laughs) injured my right hand, um, which is my dominant hand. And I have quickly learned, you know, how dependent I am on just use of my hand um, to make food. pour my cereal in the morning, to chop vegetables. My husband has quickly become my sous chef and having to really pick up some slack. You know, and I've thought many times about how, this is a very minor injury. Any kind of major disability, I can only imagine, you know, how much more difficult it would be to prepare your food, you know, to get to the grocery store, um, you know, and, and to cook. And so that's definitely going to be um, a potential barrier for people. Yeah. Homelessness, of course, you know, if you don't have a place to cook, you don't have a kitchen, um, that's going to make things very challenging. And not only that, but SNAP benefits, you know, you might, that might help you financially purchase food, but SNAP benefits cannot be used for hot prepared foods. And so again, if you don't have a kitchen, you don't have a place to cook, eating, raw onions and you know raw vegetables is not very enjoyable Um, and so you know that can also be challenging and then of course just not having a car or easy access to public transportation you might have a grocery store nearby but if it's difficult to get to it's really hard to carry a big you know bag of groceries multiple blocks or to navigate public transit while you're carrying lots of bags you know, I've, I've tried that once or twice. It's it's not fun. Um, so just lots of different ways that things can be inconvenient and make it difficult to to actually get fresh food and to cook it.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, all those factors are just things you just wouldn't think about on a daily basis that seem like they would they come into play quite a bit. Right. Um. For those that don't have that access, or those factors do come into play for. Um. Okay. So that brings us to the COVID-19 pandemic, which has of course dominated our lives for the last year. You devoted an entire research paper to looking at what the data tell us about food security during the pandemic. So let's start here. What is the conventional narrative about hunger during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so as we've talked about, um, poverty is one of the biggest indicators, you know, or or risk factors for being food insecure, um, which poverty, of course, is highly associated with unemployment, loss of income. Um, And so with the pandemic, what was one of the first things we saw? Millions of people lost their jobs. Right. And so you know, from from that perspective, it seems quite obvious that, okay, then you're very likely to have lots of people suddenly become food insecure. They no longer have income to purchase food. Well, given that, you know, it was kind of such an obvious outcome, Congress took action. You know, I think we can applaud them for the quickness, um, you know, and and thoroughness of some of their early relief bills. SNAP benefits were one of the very first things in unemployment You know that they boosted in those first, the Families First Act and the CARES Act, um, provided significant increases in not just the unemployment benefit levels, but also who would be eligible. Of course, there were the stimulus payments and then the SNAP program, um, and even like school lunch programs, those benefits were significantly enhanced to provide a much richer benefit to hopefully, you know, kind of avert this, what could have been, um, you know, a terrible crisis. And so so they took action to try and mitigate all of that. But then of course, you know, like you said, we saw, we all saw the news stories of miles long lines of cars waiting to pick up, you know, boxes of food and, and food banks just being overrun. And so given all of the assistance that was provided, why was that still happening? To some degree, I think it might be a while before we fully understand, but I think some of it was logistical challenges. Some of it was regulatory issues. You know, at at the start of the pandemic, I think some stories that didn't necessarily get a lot of play were those on how difficult it was. Like we have all of these food distribution systems set up, assuming people buy X percentage of their food at a grocery store. They also buy a significant chunk from restaurants when they go out to eat, right? And so we have entire distribution lines that are nothing but getting food to restaurants. Mm-hmm. Well, restaurants were closed right almost immediately. That was one of the first things that closed, right? And people stopped going, even if they were open, many people stopped going just because it was unsafe. Um, and so we suddenly had all of this food that was packaged and prepared to be sent to restaurants that now was going to waste need, you know, we had excess supply, significant excess, um, sorry, not supply, but demand at the grocery stores. And the food just wasn't getting there. It wasn't packaged for individual, you know, retail sale. And so some of it was just a logistical and regulatory, you know, kind of nightmare, perfect storm of problems. That made it very difficult. Um, and so I think, you know, that was part of it. And I don't know how much better we necessarily could have done on that front. But we eventually got it figured out, people repurposed, made adjustments. And, you know, I think that was part of the early Problem. And then, of course, you know, it took time for SNAP benefits to process, for unemployment benefits to process, for the stimulus payments to get sent. Um, you know, I know a lot of people didn't get their first stimulus payments for months. And then, on top of that, lower income individuals who are most at risk often don't file taxes because they don't have to pay. And if you hadn't filed taxes, the IRS had no way of getting you a check that you were owed. Um, and so, just all of these things kind of made it complicated and meant that a lot of people weren't getting benefits that they were eligible for. And so I think that was part of the story.
0: Yeah. So I think you said it, like, it sounds like a perfect storm of what happened. And it just took time to adjust to the, the new reality that we were in for the economy. Right. One of the other things you noted in your paper was the historical inconsistencies. There are a number of historical inconsistencies in these trends. Can you walk us through some of those?
1: Yeah, so to start is, as I mentioned at the top um, of our conversation, food insecurity has been measured for the last 25 or so years, every December by the census. And we have seen a declining trend since 2014, when the economy really started to recover from the Great Recession, and it had been coming down pretty steadily. And our last data point that we have was from 2019. In December of 2019, just months before the pandemic, our rate of families who were very had very low food security was down to 4.1%. Well, then when we started these household pulse surveys that the census started conducting during the pandemic every couple of weeks, in the very first one that they conducted, they asked people about their food insufficiency levels just prior to the pandemic, prior to March 13th, when it was officially declared a pandemic. And in that data, 8.1% of respondents said that they had either either often or sometimes did not have enough to eat and were classified as being food insufficient. Well, 8.1%, that's double our last data point of very low food security from just three months prior. So that was kind of the first red flag. How did we, before the pandemic started, incre- you know double our food insufficiency rate? That really doesn't make sense. So that suggests that there's something about the methodology, the type of people who were responding, the way people felt about their circumstances that was causing a difference in how people answered. It really doesn't make sense that it would the rate would double in just three months. Before the pandemic, before the mass layoffs. So that's the first point. Second is that as the year continued, the number who were reporting food insufficiency, again, either sometimes or often not having enough to eat, increased as the unemployment rate declined, which is very much at odds with historical trends. We've pretty much never seen that, especially for an extended period of time. So that's Really interesting. It's really curious. Why might that be happening? I don't necessarily have a good answer, but I have some guesses. And part of that might be that the unemployment benefits that Congress passed were incredibly generous, particularly through July, when people were getting an additional $600 per week with their unemployment benefits. And of course, you know, the SNAP benefits were also enhanced. But as people started to go back to work, we know that with that enhanced unemployment benefit, at least half, if not more, I think up to two-thirds, according to research by Isabel Soto, our Director of Labor Policy here at the American Action Forum, she did research showing that a significant share of the population was actually receiving more income when they were getting their unemployment benefits than when they had been at work. So is it possible that the generosity of those benefits actually made it easier for people to buy food. And then when they went back to work and started getting those enhanced benefits, purchasing food suddenly became more difficult. We don't quite know, but possibly. It could also just be that heating costs begin to increase in the fall. People were buying Christmas presents in December. And so now perhaps there's just more Places where they need to spend money, there's there's competing finances, right. maybe they're, they have less money available for food because they're purchasing other things mm-hmm. so, a certain area where I think additional research and kind of, you know, look, looking back and trying to figure that out, um, I think will be a really interesting research question.
0: Yeah. So my next question was actually going to be about those divergences between the food insecurity and unemployment rate during the pandemic and what those possible causes might be. But it sounds like you're saying that there's still it's still an open question, could be some of those things you mentioned, but more research is needed on that topic.
1: Yeah. And I think trying to understand that, you know, really would be beneficial for us to to have a better understanding of what what were people's experiences, what was causing that. Is there something from a policy perspective, you know, where we were failing that we could do better? God forbid something like this again in the future. I think it's really important to le- to learn from that and to and to figure out so that we can be better prepared.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it trying to find what those data points are at this point? That is still sort of trying to figure out how to how to get that information.
1: Yeah, I think it's really difficult to know kind of in real time, um, especially when it's so inconsistent with, you know, all of the assumptions that we have based on historical trends and whatnot. I think it's going to take uh, quite a while to, to sort through and think through and figure out what those causes might be.
0: Mm-hmm. So a question for the postmortem, essentially. Yes. One of the other things you examined in your paper was the trends with the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. You've mentioned it a couple of times. That's a SNAP program and the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, the WIC program. (laughs) Uh, That was a mouthful. What did the changes in SNAP and WIC participation reveal?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. SNAP kind of behaved as you would expect. Again, SNAP is a food assistance program for low-income individuals, and so, like we've talked about, millions of people were laid off, incomes declined, of course more people became eligible for SNAP. That's what it's there for. And the benefits increased significantly, so there certainly was an incentive to sign up and get those benefits. And so, as expected, SNAP participation rose pretty significantly. What was interesting is that WIC participation, so WIC is for, as Kyle said, women, infants, and children, particularly pregnant or postpartum women and children up to the age of five. Participation there declined, and you know that that was kind of baffling. The only thing that I can think of that perhaps explains that is that, you know, at the start of the pandemic, there was kind of a lot of joking about how we were going to have this baby boom. Well, the data has actually shown that it's been more of a baby bust. I guess people thought spending more time at home, you know, might just lead to more babies. Well, I don't know if it's that people, you know, have become annoyed with their spouses or, or you know, just the fact that we're in a pandemic and these are really difficult times that might really be playing into why people have chosen to not actually have um, babies over the last year. It's you know certainly not an ideal time to bring a new child into the world, and so it it could be that you know just like the rest of you know kind of the general population, the data that we're seeing, low income women also have not gotten pregnant at higher rates. They might actually be getting pregnant at lower rates, and thus you know fewer people are actually eligible for the WIC program because again you have to be pregnant or postpartum, have an infant um, or a young child. So that's my guess for why WIC participation did not increase at a similar rate that SNAP did.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the more surprising trends through this entire pandemic, I mean, I sort of equate it with uh, Doug. Back in the beginning of this whole pandemic, Doug and I were talking about the economy and you know the impact uh, the pandemic has had on the economy, and you saw like the healthcare sector actually declined. Through the pandemic, which was very surprising because we're in the middle of a health pandemic, how is that happening? Well, people just weren't going to the doctor as much, and all that
1: it wasn't COVID-related. Then it was just not happening, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: So, what other additional challenges with the data did you find?
1: Yeah. So, one was just very low response rates to these weekly um, pulse surveys, and not only lower response rates, but lower response rates from a smaller population than we normally sample in our like annual census surveys. And so, and when I say low response rate, I'm talking often one, three, 5%, only twice did it reach as high as 10%. And so that's just anyone doing, um, sampling research would tell you that that's just not going to give you high quality data. It doesn't provide a very, um, It's not likely to provide a very representative um, sample and and tell you, give you a good picture of what's really going on. I think oftentimes, you know, think about the times you have filled out like a customer satisfaction survey. It's typically when things are really bad or perhaps maybe when things are really good. But if you're just kind of doing so-so, you don't really bother. So it's certainly possible that the people who are responding to these surveys are people who are in particularly dire straits and, you know, they want people to know that they're struggling. And so it could be, you know, that that is why the rates seem so much higher mm-hmm. than what we would have expected um, based on historical data.
0: Yeah, something you obviously have to keep an eye on.
1: Right. There also are a couple of different types of biases that could be at play There could be recall bias, which is just, you don't remember things quite exactly as they were, or sometimes because this is happening, um, you know, the, the surveys are asking you to remember just what happened over the last week or the last two weeks. It's really fresh in your mind as compared to our annual surveys when they ask you to think back over the course of the year. You know, when you do an annual survey and you think back, well, how was I doing in March and it's now December? If things might have been bad then, but then they got better throughout the year, it doesn't feel like it was as bad as it was, perhaps. So there could just be differences based on the time frame that you're being asked to, to think about. Um, and then there's also something called compounding bias. And it could be that there's so many stressors in everyone's life right now during this pandemic you know, people are worried about their health, obviously the income situation, You know, their kids aren't going to school, they're not playing with their friends. There's so many reasons for people to be stressed out. And so those things can kind of compound on each other and make each individual thing seem worse than maybe you really would think of it otherwise, like on its own. So that could also be something at play here.
0: Gotcha. So, yeah, all things you have to sort of keep in mind as you're looking at the at the data and honestly it makes it tough to figure out what exactly is happening out there. All right. So I have one final question for you, and that's what do we look at going forward here? I mean, what are the big takeaways from your research? Where do policymakers and you know lawmakers go from here?
1: Yeah, I think one of the big things to keep in mind, obviously, food insecurity is not a brand new issue during the pandemic. It just kind of was one of those things that bubbled up, you know, and, and got a lot of attention. But it, it it's not new and it's not going away as soon as the pandemic is over. And I think something that really is important, you know, it's 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 one of those. A lot of issues have kind of come to the forefront, you know, d- during this time. And I think to a large degree, things that many people didn't think about before are finally getting some necessary attention and things that quite frankly deserve attention even when this pandemic is over. And so I hope that people will keep in mind how important having access to healthy, nutritious food is. Um, It's important for your physical health, for your mental health, for your education, and all of those things, You know, particularly the impact it has on your education. I don't know if you've ever tried to think or study or do anything when you're hungry, I know that I don't function well when, when I'm hungry. All I can think about is food. Um, so imagine being a child in school who you know is hungry all of the time. We know that they're not doing as well as, as other children who are well-fed. Um, and so I just hope that we can kind of keep in mind all of these things, the importance of them um, and, and pay them the attention they deserve moving forward.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree with you on the, the, you know, the trying to do anything when you're hungry part. I mean, there's been so many times in my day where I have a noon meeting and I'm like, what the heck? I got to get off of this as quick as possible so I can go eat something before I snap at somebody. (laughs) But anyways, Tara, thanks for coming on and talking to us about this. But also thanks for looking at this in-depth issue. I think, you know, it's something that we haven't really examined as much. And it's good good to hear, you know, you took the time and to look at all this.
1: Yeah, it really was a very interesting thing to research, and I I certainly learned a lot from it. So thanks for having me on. Let me share what I found.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.